In a world ruled by emotion, where reason is abandoned, God is forsaken, and history forgotten, two brave men will attempt to do the unthinkable. Use their brains. Armed with ancient wisdom, they will bring light into our modern world. This is the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. Hello everyone, welcome to the Sons of Antiquity Podcast. I'm your host, Evan, and I'm joined in the studio by my co-host, Dan. Hello, everyone. Today, we're going to be discussing everything regarding the Crusades. Deus Volt. Here's what we're going to cover on today's episode. An overview of the Crusades. What were the justifications? A prelude to the Crusades and East-West tension. The First Crusade. The other seven Crusades in the Holy Land. Populist Crusades. Crusades outside of the Holy Land. Aftermath historical and popular evaluations, and finally our evaluations, should there be another crusade. First up, an overview of the crusades. What were the justifications? He was not afraid to die for Christ. At long last, crushed rather than conquered by spears, stones, and lances, he sank to the ground and joyfully passed to heaven with the martyr's crown, triumphant. It was indeed a gentle death, with no place for sorrow, when one man's sword had constructed such a great crown for himself, from the crowd laid all around him. Death is sweet when the victor lies encircled by the impious people he has slain with his victorious right hand. The place where he fought was covered with the stubble which the reapers had left standing when they had to cut the grain shortly before. Such a great number of Turks had rushed in to attack. And this one man had fought for so long against so many battalions that the field in which they stood was completely reduced to dust, and there was not a trace of the crop to be seen. It is said that there were some who sprinkled the body of the dead man with dust and placed dust on their heads, believing that they would draw courage from the contact. In fact, rumor has it that one person was moved with more fervor than the rest. He cut off the man's genitals and kept them safe, for begetting children, so that even when dead, the man's members, if such a thing were possible, would produce an heir with courage as great as his. This apocryphal story describes a Templar knight named Jacqueline de Maley, who died in 1187. I think this story is an excellent demonstration of the piety and zeal of this age. Yeah, it's a good quotation indeed. The Crusades were a series of military expeditions against real and alleged enemies of the church starting in 1095. What differentiates regular war from Crusades is the official endorsement and even active recruitment from the Bishop of Rome, the Chair of Peter, the Pope of the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. The enemies were threats to Christian lands, Christian holy sites, and or Christian unity. Let me say that a lot of this episode is based on the book Fighting for Christendom, Holy War and the Crusades by Christopher Tyreman. It is somewhat dry, admittingly, but serves as a neutral evaluation of crusading. The English word crusader comes from cruce signati, are those who have been signed by the cross. They vowed to fight for the church and received a blessed cross, which they wore while on campaign. The Crusades were a bunch of wars solely against the Muslim Middle East, right? Wrong. The targets of crusading included, quote, Syrians, Palestinians, Egyptians, Greeks, Slavs, Balts, Livs, Lets, 
Russians, Bosnians, Turks, and Spanish Moors, and a variety of fellow Christians in Germany, France, Italy, Dalmatia, Spain, and England. Their victims, Muslims, both Sunni and Shia, pagans, Christian dissidents, so-called heretics, and Jews. The Crusades, or papal-approved warfare, were fought on various fronts, most notably against the Turks in the Eastern Mediterranean, but also against the Muslims in Spain, pagans in Eastern Europe, and heretics throughout Europe. Why was there such a massive response to the Pope's call to arms? According to Tyreman, reasons included certainties of faith, fear of damnation, temporal self-image, material, social, and supernatural profit, attraction of warfare for a military aristocracy, an unequivocal good cause, and an iconic objective. Let's briefly discuss the infamous Knights Templars, also known as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. They were a Catholic military order founded in 1119 to protect pilgrims in the Holy Land once the Crusaders had gained a foothold there. They were the best crusading troops without question. They had papal approval from 1139 to 1312. Very quickly, they became prominent in finance, with 90% of knights being non-combatants. With so many donations and grants, they were the richest non-governmental entity in Europe, and arguably the first multinational corporation. Once the Crusader states fell, the support for the Templars faded. They were falsely implicated by a French king who owed them a bunch of money and burned at the stake on February the 13th, 1307. At its height, it had up to 20,000 members. A few years later, they were suppressed uh, by the Pope, and they are no longer with us. The Hospitallars, or the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, that's quite a title there, was another Catholic military order. They cared for the sick, poor, and injured pilgrims in the Holy Land starting in 1099. As their name implies, they created a hospital there. They also engaged in military activity. After the Crusaders were expelled, they operated from Rhodes, then from Malta. They actually ran Malta until Napoleon kicked them out in 1798, so that's quite a run they had. They have split up, but a few successor orders remain to this day. On the surface, Christian holy war may seem like an oxymoron, but if you dig a little bit below the surface, it is apparent that it is a lot more complicated. Just war theory was developed by some of the pagan Greeks and Romans, but it really came to fruition in Christian thought under St. Ambrose of Milan and St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived near the end of the Western Roman Empire. In order for a war to be just, it has to be initiated for just reasons and conducted according to certain moral standards. I won't go into them there, you can look into them yourself. Therefore, Christians were allowed to go to war and kill others, at least under certain conditions. If you look into the Old Testament, you can find many examples of violence against Gentiles and sinful Israelites. Jericho is just one example. And it's pretty clear that God often clearly orders these massacres in the biblical text. Going a lot later in Jewish history, the Maccabean revolt against the Gentile empire that ruled them gets treated as a righteous war in sacred scripture. Look at First and Second Maccabees in your Catholic or Orthodox Bible. There was a time where the Roman emperor was a Christian who ruled his divinely inspired empire. With the fall of Rome, the question of authority to wage just war was questioned. In the East, however, this was not a problem. Is crusading like Christian jihad then? Not really. Jihad is an obligation for all Muslims all the time. Most of the time, luckily, that obligation is just a personal struggle against sin, which Christians share. But in, we can say throughout history, Muslim rulers granted pragmatic tolerance to Christians and Jews in firmly Muslim areas. 
but border places were occasions for total subjugation of all non-Muslims. If Islam is under threat, then the second form of jihad is valid. Crusading was never an obligation for all Christians. You had to sign up voluntarily and the aims were limited. And that uh, that's true for all of the Crusades. They all seem to me like voluntary operations. At least the very first one certainly was. It was just calls to the West for volunteers. Yeah, it was never a draft system. In fact, uh, we'll have to link it in the description. But there is a song I heard on YouTube that's about um, King Louis the Ninth, later St. Louis. It's this song about him begging the nobles to go on his crusade with him. And they're all like, oh, I, I don't know, I'm busy. Um, I'll fight for France. I don't want to go over to the Holy Land and do it. But oh. So it's it required voluntary cooperation. Hmm. There was never a draft. Prelude to the Crusades and the East-West Tension. In the 300s AD, the Roman Empire split into East and West, as you likely know. The Western Roman Empire fell in 476 to barbarians. What followed was barbarian rule in the West until Justinian I of the Eastern Roman Empire, hereafter called the Byzantines, temporarily reunited part of the West into his empire in the 500s. In the 7th century, Islam was born, and the religion of peace spread very quickly from the Arabian Peninsula. From 634 to 711, the Muslim Umayyad Empire captured Egypt, the Middle East, Northern Africa, and most of Iberia, all of which were Christian territories and part of the Byzantine or Eastern Roman Empire. Jerusalem fell in 638. The Spanish Reconquista, or Reconquest of Iberia, was a prolonged conflict between Christian Spaniards and Muslim occupiers from 711 all the way until 1492. Imagine fighting for almost 800 years. Damn, that's a long, long war. That's three times the age of the United States. The West, including the Pope, came to be influenced by the Franks. Think Charlemagne. It was acknowledged that the seat of the Roman Empire had been in Constantinople since Constantine the Great moved his capital there in the 300s. However, with the ascension of Empress Irene in the East, the Pope declared Charlemagne the rightful Roman Emperor in 800. This would end up becoming the Holy Roman Empire, and no, we will not say the cliché from Voltaire. I refuse. In 1054, due to a variety of cultural and political issues, yet ostensibly due to theological disputes, the Eastern and Western Church split into the Orthodox and Catholic Churches, respectively. This was a huge deal, and was by far the largest split in ecclesiastical history thus far. Many attempts were made to reunite the churches, since Christian unity is a big deal for apostolic churches. And near the end of the 11th century, reunification was very much on the table. The Seljuk Turks started overrunning Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, so you can see where this ends up going, in the 1070s, and this caused the desperate Byzantine emperor to petition the Pope in Western Europe for help. So, the moment you've been waiting for, a play-by-play -play of the Crusades. So here's how it started with the First Crusade. It was initiated by Pope Urban II in 1095 at the Council of Clermont in France. As the decree stated, Whoever for devotion alone, not to gain honor or money, goes to Jerusalem to liberate the Church of God, can substitute this journey for all penance. While the Pope's speech has not survived, we know that it was rousing and the audience started chanting, Deus la vault, God wills it, at the end. The original goal was to aid the Byzantine Emperor Alexios Komnenos, who requested help from the Westerners in the year 1095. The Seljuk Turks were wreaking havoc in the east, and Alexios needed volunteers to repel the invaders. So Pope Urban obliged. 
A departure date was set for August 15th of 1096. As four armies were assembled, consisting of higher-ranking knights and generally more able-bodied men, the People's Crusade commenced and was promptly halted by vicious Turkish forces. The survivors avoided capture but remained in the area. When August arrived, the four armies set out on schedule and were led by Hugh of Vermandois, Godfrey, Raymond, and Bohemond. The armies took separate paths to Constantinople, but reunited outside the city's massive walls throughout late 1096 and early 1097. This time around, Alexios was much more accommodating and the armies didn't have to do as much plundering and skirmishing with locals outside of the city to supply the troops. In exchange for food and supplies, Alexios demanded that the crusaders swear allegiance to him and hand over to the Byzantine Empire any and all territory recaptured from the Turks. They agreed, and Alexios ushered them across the Bosporus, now known as the Strait of Istanbul, the continental divide between Europe and Asia. Next up, the capture of Nicaea. The Crusaders, along with two generals supplied by Alexios, soon reunited with Peter the Hermit and the remnants of the People's Crusade that had departed earlier. Their first objective was to capture Nicaea, a city located roughly 100 miles from Constantinople. Nicaea served as the capital of the Seljuk Sultanate under a Mr. Kelij Arslan I, who was out of town on business and was not concerned for the city's safety after witnessing the poor performance of Peter the Hermit's army. But on May 16th, a long siege began, and when Arslan got word of this, he rushed back to help. Heavy casualties were sustained by both sides, but the Crusaders ultimately triumphed after Byzantine reinforcements pushed their ships out of water and onto logs to reach Lake Iznik and successfully blockade it, cutting off supplies to the city. Finally, the march to and capture of Jerusalem. For two long years after their success at Nicaea, the Crusaders marched along the coast of the Mediterranean toward Jerusalem, a journey well over 1,000 miles, mostly unopposed. Although Arslan burned and pillaged in his retreat, leaving the Crusaders with fewer supplies, locals traded and made peace with the traveling army. Finally, on June 7, 1099, the army, now numbering only 12,000 foot soldiers and 1,500 cavalry, arrived in Jerusalem. For the next five weeks, the city was besieged until the Crusaders finally broke through the defenses. On July 15th, the massacre began. The eastern Christian population of the city had been expelled prior to the siege, but the remaining Muslims were killed indiscriminately and Jews were burned alive in their synagogues. A council was held on July 22nd with the goal of electing a king of the brand new kingdom of Jerusalem. In a toss-up between generals Raymond and Godfrey, Raymond took the humble route and passed on the chance. Godfrey jumped at the opportunity, so he became king. So I guess they pretty quickly went against that agreement with the Byzantine emperor. Oh yeah, I don't think they really thought that they were going to uh, to do that anyway. I mean, because they're not out there fighting. And most of the people were Westerners, so they said, hey, we'll just divide this up for ourselves. So let's talk about the other seven crusades. The Second Crusade lasted from about 1147 to 1149. Four Christian strongholds, or crusader states as they were later called, were established shortly after the end of the First Crusade. They were Jerusalem, Edessa, Antioch, and Tripoli. The northernmost state of Edessa fell to the Turks in 1144, and in response to this act of jihad, the West struck back. King Louis VII of France and King Conrad III of Germany amassed an army 50,000 strong to march on Damascus, about 200 miles north of Jerusalem. Muslim reinforcements from Mosul helped repel the invaders, and the Second Crusade ended in failure. And then the Third Crusade, from 1187 to 1192. 
After many failed attempts to capture Egypt, Christian armies from Jerusalem were expelled from the region when the Turkish general Saladin seized Cairo in 1169. This success empowered Saladin to expand military campaigns, leading to his brutal takeover of Jerusalem and surrounding territories in 1187. This launched the Third Crusade, which was led by Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, King Philip II of France, and King Richard I of England, a.k.a. Richard the Lionheart. The only major battle of this crusade was the Battle of Arsuf, which ended in victory for King Richard's forces. The recaptured city of Jaffa became a Christian base of operations from which the crusaders could begin reclaiming the region surrounding Jerusalem. But Richard would not lay siege to the city. Instead, he and Saladin signed a peace treaty in September of 1192, which re-established the kingdom of Jerusalem, but left the city itself to the Turks. The Fourth Crusade, from 1198 to 1204. The massacre of the Latins in 1182 set the stage for the Fourth Crusade. Roman Catholics were killed en masse, leading to tense relations between East and West. Pope Innocent III called for yet another crusade in 1198, but instead the crusaders diverted and headed to Constantinople to overthrow Alexius III and replace him with his nephew, who became Alexius IV. Alexius IV attempted to submit the Byzantine church to Rome's will and promised to pay the crusaders for their support, which didn't go over well with the locals, leading to his strangulation in a palace coup in 1204. His replacement, Alexius Ducas, urged the crusaders to leave without payment. With their man dead and with revenge on their minds, the crusaders decided to sack the city. Women, even nuns, were raped. Convents and churches and monasteries were looted and burned. Men were slaughtered. Art was stolen. Even a giant bronze statue of Hercules was smelted down. The church disavowed these horrific actions, but they were too far away to stop the madness. Byzantine territories were then divided up among the conquerors, and although the empire reunited in 1261, it never returned to its former strength. Ironically, this made it harder to keep Islamic forces at bay over the next few centuries, allowing the Turks to gain significant territory in southern Europe. Also, on the way to the siege of Constantinople, they uh, besieged a Catholic town, and so that was that actually led to the excommunication of all the crusaders. So that by the time they reached Constantinople, they were all excommunicated by the Pope. Oh, really? For attacking their own people, basically. Yeah, and they weren't they weren't go- supposed to attack Constantinople either. Yeah, the original goal was obviously another crusade back into the Middle East, you know, uh, towards Jerusalem. There was a very very famous uh, Doge, the real Doge, Doge of Venice, Enrico Dandolo. He just kind of needed money. That's why they sacked the city. <laughs> Oh, they, they were in debt from the beginning. It was just a disaster. That wacky doge, always <laughs> up to insane, crazy things. Fifth Crusade, 1216 to 1221. Pope Innocent III called for the Fifth Crusade right before his death. Crusaders attacked Egypt again, but were thwarted by Muslim forces and surrendered in 1221. The Sixth Crusade, in 1229. Emperor Frederick II negotiated a treaty with Islamic forces which peacefully transferred control of Jerusalem to the Crusaders, but it only lasted for 10 years, and then they took it back. Seventh Crusade, 1248 to 1254. King Louis IX of France led a crusade in Egypt, and once again the Christians failed to capture it. Eighth Crusade, 1268 through 1271. In response to the destruction of Antioch, Louis IX launched a crusade to assist fellow Christians in Syria, but changed course to Tunis, where he ultimately died. Edward I of England made an attempt as well, but made little progress. In 1291, the last crusader state, Acre, 
fell to the Muslim Mamluks. This marks the end of what most people think of when they think of the Crusades. Finally, moving on to populist crusades. There were two children's crusades, quote, in 1212. The first was a group which started in northern France and was more of a penitential and revivalist procession than a military march. They never left France and probably had no intention to. They just wanted to call Christians to repentance for their many sins. The second consisted of large groups of young people led by a boy named Nicholas of Cologne. It must be noted that the word used in the sources is pueri, which just means minors. So these kids were probably more like teenagers. They were accompanied by some adults and priests and marched through the Rhineland in order to rally troops to free the Holy Sepulchre. They probably didn't make it past northern Italy. They were targeted by highway robbers and many went AWOL after realizing they would never actually reach Jerusalem. In 1251, a shepherd's crusade came about in France. These poor crusaders blamed the failure of King Louis IX's Egyptian expedition on corrupt French nobility and wanted to rescue him. Once it was revealed that the leaders were rabble-rousers and they started attacking clergy and Jews, the movement was violently suppressed. The popular crusades, they just love attacking those Jews. It's like every one. In 1309, the Crusade of the Poor commenced, composed of peasants from England, Germany, and France. The last crusader state had been ejected from the Holy Land in 1291, and the Pope was trying to retake it. As many as 40,000 poor people made their way to southern France, relying on charity and then robbery and anti-Jewish violence to survive. The hospitalers refused to give them ships to use, so they just had to go back home. Sad. The Shepherd's Crusade of 1320 was a French movement of the poor to help the Spanish in their Reconquista. However, it soon became a gang that attacked Jews everywhere it went. <laughs> it's hilarious how this always becomes, yeah, anti-Jewish. Uh, the Pope condemned this so-called crusade, and they were defeated by the King of Aragon once they had caused plenty of havoc and murder there. Now finally, let's go to crusades outside of the Holy Land. From 1209 to 1229, Crusades were fought against the Cathars of southern France, also called the Albigensians. The Cathars were Puritans and believed in dualism, the idea that the spiritual world is good and the material world is evil. This was basically Gnosticism. The treatment of this region and the heretics was notoriously brutal and indiscriminate. The Crusades against the Hussites, another heretic group, lasted from 1419 to 1434. The Hussites were a proto-Protestant sect started by priest John Huss, Huss was condemned as a heretic and killed in 1415. Huss condemned church corruption, crusading, indulgences, the authority of the church, and transubstantiation of the Eucharist, and did an early version of Sola Scriptura and Solus Christus, or Christ alone and Scripture alone. Oh yeah, could you uh, expand on that a little bit for someone who is not familiar with those terms? Well, scripture alone is the idea that only the Bible is a valid source of information about what the church should believe. Not the church itself. Yes, correct. And if it is the church itself, it's just using the Bible as justification. Uh, you know, so it's no, no tradition, no papacy. It's a very Protestant idea. And oh, then, yeah. Solus Christus is Christ alone. So that's an anti-church idea. Like, we're led by Christ, not a pope, not a bishop. Oh, okay, so all the parts where Jesus said that, hey, I'm going to build a church, basically, or a church will become after me, it's that Christ doesn't matter is, Christ to them. Is the, well, Christ is the head of the church. There's no earthly head of the church. Oh. That's like only Christ. That's all we need. We mm -hmm. don't need a magisterium or a pope or a tradition. 
So he was an early advocate of that. Interesting. And he was wronged, I will say, at the council that condemned him. He was promised safe conduct, and then they went ahead and killed him. So, Dang, he was dealt a bad hand then. He was. I mean, he was a heretic, but still, a promise is a promise. Fair enough. The Reconquista, as we mentioned, was a long conflict between the Christian kingdoms of Iberia and Muslims, but often interspersed with infighting of the various Christian kingdoms. The Muslims invaded and conquered most of Iberia by 711, but somehow, over time, the Spanish gained parcels of it back until the final Muslims were expelled from Grenada in 1492, along with the Jews. With the help of the Teutonic Knights, Germans engaged in ethnic cleansing in the Baltic while land-grabbing. Those peoples were mostly pagans, but it was a huge abuse of power. FYI, the Teutonic Knights were so secular by the 1500s that they became Protestant and were absorbed by the state. Attempted crusades against Protestant revolutionaries was very ineffective and destructive. The wars of religion were a disaster for Europe. When the Crusades ended is a matter of debate. To say it ended after the Fifth Crusade is incorrect. There were many minor crusades to the Holy Land after that, and many more in Europe. For example, Belgrade was saved by a crusade in 1456 from a Turkish siege. The Reconquista ended in 1492. Crusading died not with a bang, but with a whimper. Church authority and power was simply usurped by secular powers. War became increasingly the business of princes, not popes and bishops. Now let's discuss the aftermath of the Crusades. The Crusades indirectly inspired the Protestant Revolution. The abuse of indulgences was often done to get more money for Crusades and ecclesiastical corruption. While corruption of bishops and even the Pope existed before the First Crusade, look at the 900s, that was a terrible time for the Church. It got worse once the Popes were leading large armies and directing European kingdoms. I won't go into details, but you can read it for yourself. It does not undermine the legitimacy of the Catholic Church as an institution, but those involved will pay for the stain and scandal they left in the Church. Martin Luther was responding to corruption, which was worsened by the Crusades. So maybe he wouldn't have gotten pissed enough to post his heresies on the Church door if the Crusades never happened. But pride is a funny thing. Who knows? In the long term, the Middle East was not affected at all by the Crusades. Once the Crusaders were evicted, Muslims forgot about the Crusades until European colonial powers taught it to them. We cannot underestimate how unnatural Europe's holy war against the Holy Land was. There was nothing that made such a conquest inevitable. In fact, there were many formidable obstacles to overcome. The end of the Reconquista in Spain coincided perfectly with the Spanish Ferdinand and Isabella's funding of Christopher Columbus's voyage that discovered America. Before that, a liberated Portugal sent explorers around Africa to Asia. These adventures were undertaken to find trade routes to Asia without having to deal with Muslim middlemen. Without freedom from Muslim rule, the Portuguese and Spanish would have been unable to do these expeditions, and history would be very different. However, the Reconquista would have happened regardless of crusading status. So it is hard to say how much religious fervor factored into the defeat of the Moors. France proved itself to be a huge contributor to crusading and Catholic fervor. Until the French Revolution... It was a very Catholic country. Crusading brought together many European kingdoms that would have never cooperated otherwise. Though the Holy Land campaigns would end up failures, the ability of Europe to rally together under the Pope proved to be a striking example of stronger together. Now we can rightly ask, did the Crusades, especially the Fourth, pave the way for Byzantium to be conquered by the Turks? I think it's a fair critique. I don't think so. I, don't, I think it's overrated, if anything. 
The fact that they failed to repel and work with a small crusading army does not bode well for a supposedly healthy empire. That's fair. I think the one counterpoint I might add is that had they been attacked head-on by the Turkish forces, they could have rallied and, and gotten help from, from behind, you know, from the Westerners. And, of course, it was a bit of a surprise attack. They didn't expect them to just suddenly show up at Constantinople and didn't expect everything to go south so fast. So that they wouldn't have allowed the Ottomans to get that close to begin with, right? So it's a little bit different. It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. The success of the Turks actually led them to stop the Mongols from coming further west, saving Europe from an arguably worse foe. I guess the enemy of my enemy is my less bad enemy. I'd agree with that. The Ottoman Turks finally conquered Constantinople in 1453, a sad event for the Sons of Antiquity podcast. We still weep every now and then for this. This opened the floodgates for a Muslim invasion of Europe. They overran the Balkans and made it as far as Vienna in 1683, but this was a turning point in the war, though, and the Turks were driven back. Since World War I, the Ottoman Turks have been limited to modern-day Turkey, where they belong, which includes Constantinople and Anatolia, but the Balkans are mostly Christian or secular. Yeah, Albania is, an, is a counterexample. I think the Bosnians are Muslim, too. So here are some historical and popular evaluations of the Crusades. There are many evaluations of the Crusades in all parts of the spectrum. David Hume said that the Crusades were the most signal and most durable monument of human folly that has yet appeared in any age or nation. Yet, they engrossed the attention of Europe and have since engrossed the curiosity of mankind. In a similar vein, people, especially those with modern ideas, have labeled the Crusades as European colonialism, white racism, ethnic cleansing, and barbarism. On the other end, some have said that the act of crusading was a noble cause, seeking the liberation of Christendom from Islamic slavery, a sacrificial offering of one's life for love of fellow Christians. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends, as the Gospel of John goes. Historians since the Enlightenment have been highly critical of the endeavors we call the Crusades. This is due to a variety of reasons, but on an ideological level, they have largely been advocates of religious freedom and the separation of church and state. In this lens, of course, the Crusades were atrocious. In addition, they can point to all the atrocities that took place against Muslims, Jews, pagans, and heretical Christians. However, in more modern times, historians have taken a more nuanced view of it. The Crusades were not white supremacy. They were not barbaric Christians slaughtering peaceful and advanced Muslims. They were a set of wars with religious overtones. War will be violent and messy. The Muslims had been a major threat to Europe for centuries. The Crusades had many good effects and many bad effects. You must see past events in the context of their times. Francisco Franco, the leader of the Nationalists in Spain and longtime not-bad dictator, was probably the last Christian statesman to use crusading rhetoric. The total carnage of the two world wars combined with the Holocaust left a bad taste in everyone's mouth for religious and secular violence. The rise of secularism also disconnected people from the religious zeal of their ancestors and made the Crusades even less relatable to them. The Catholic Church still recognizes the validity of indulgences, and you can still receive partial and plenary indulgences for certain actions. Look it up. But crusading rhetoric is def definitely in the rearview mirror. No pope since World War II would even think about calling a crusade. 
Not only does the Pope con only control a measly 0.19 square miles, but the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s proclaimed peace with the Jews and Muslims and dispensed with religious violence in favor of religious liberty. Of all events from the Middle Ages, I would say that the Crusades are the most well-known for the average American. Not everyone can tell you about scholasticism, but everyone and their mom has a strong opinion about the Crusades. Since the Protestant Revolution, most people have had negative opinions of the Crusades. In my opinion, this is largely due to anti-Catholic propaganda, first from the Protestants, who wanted to discredit the Catholic Church, then from the Enlightenment thinkers, who wanted to discredit Christianity and religion. In America, which has been a mix of Protestant and secular history, it is no surprise that the Crusades have not fared well in public opinion. And it's worth mentioning that they haven't fared well in public education. I mean, how much did you learn about the Crusades when you were in school? Yeah, I knew, I knew next to nothing about it. Just that they were evil. That's it. You know? Yeah, that's all you hear. Yeah. <laughs> evil Europeans kill Muslims. That's all I remember. Yeah, that's fair. That's that's basically what it is, what it's advertised as. And that does such a disservice to such an interesting period in in world history, because these, these were world events as close to, I hate to aggrandize this, but as close to world wars as you could really get at the time, you know, they, they spanned thousands of miles and involved cross-cultural conflict. It was pretty crazy. And it's almost never talked about in, in public school, even when we were in, in world history class, advanced world history That's class. That's the only reason I know anything about it. Yeah. All I remember is reading a passage from a um, original source that was like Christians coming in and slaughtering Jews and Muslims. That's all I remember about. <laughs> Maybe yeah, I course, just don't remember. I don't know. Of course, that's the one clip that you actually get to uh, read or hear. Yeah. And I know that doing this research really wore you out. And uh, big props, big round of applause to Evan for all the research he did on this episode. But I, for one, had a great time with this episode because I got to learn about a period in history that I have rarely even really looked into. In general, just the, quote, Middle Ages mm -hmm. and the, quote, Dark Ages is ignored in education. In the Muslim world, the story is completely different. Once the Zionists and European powers established the Jewish state of Israel in the Holy Land, the use of crusading analogies became rampant. Saladin especially has become a Muslim hero, and Saddam Hussein likened himself uh, to him in propaganda posters. Many Muslims over there view the Jews and Christians as imperialist crusaders who must be repelled like they were in 1291, and they remember who won the war, Islam. What about the treatment of Jews by crusaders? There were certainly many instances of pogroms and mob violence against Jews, though it was never an official policy of the church, and church authorities repeatedly condemned it. Authorized and unauthorized crusaders repeatedly targeted Jews for attack. It was especially bad when the Crusade was a populist movement. The average peasant didn't like Jews because that's who they owed money to, at interest. Also, most of the anti-Semitic violence was in Germany, and almost all of it was in Northern Europe. Germany has always been a bad place for Jews to be, <laughs> and that's uh, putting it mildly. Read On the Jews and Their Lies by Martin Luther and be prepared for some, um, well, problematic content. Finally, our opinions, the most important part. It is hard to even speak about the Crusades in a general way because they were so different from each other. Knowing that hindsight is 2020, I would say that the Crusades in the Holy Land were disasters all around. The bad far outweighs the good. Defending borders is one thing, but planning a colony in an area surrounded by the enemy and maintained through some barbaric violence is not smart. And the Fourth Crusade was appalling, let's admit it. In fact, 
Pope John Paul II apologized for it when he was Pope because the Greeks are still mad about it. It's a huge stain on Catholic history. In fact, many historians have marked it as the permanent split between the Catholic and Orthodox churches. Imagine the greatness we have missed. And what was the end result of all this crusading? Byzantium was the dam that kept the river of Muslim Jihad from rushing into the west. Once they were weakened after the Fourth Crusade, it made it easier for the Turks to gain territory. Plus, a split religion is never as powerful as a united one. The Reconquista was brutal, but it was war and the Muslims were equally brutal. The expulsion of the Moors from Iberia was a net positive in my very biased opinion. Not only were millions of souls saved from damnation, but also Spain and Portugal became bastions of Catholicism against its enemies for centuries to come. They are both still very nominally Catholic countries, but that's changing, unfortunately. All I gotta say is, war never changes. Like you said earlier, it's messy. And let's not even discuss all the Muslim, all that the Muslims did when they were invading Iberia. I mean, it wasn't a peaceful march. Oh no. No. You don't sweep over just huge swaths of territory so quickly being nice. <laughs> No, you you really don't. Yeah. I was watching a YouTube video on uh, year by year, like the different boundaries of all the different countries. And when Islam starts... I think I saw that same video. That was fascinating. It was fascinating. It was just a little green blip. And then next year, it's like all the way up to where Israel is now. Then it's like all the way next year, all the way up to like Nicaea and halfway across Africa. Next year, it's like going into Spain. It is insane. Just watch it explode. And actually, in the time period right after what we were just talking about, within the next century after the the end of the Crusades, you saw the expansion of the Mongols. And that that was the same thing. If you watch that video, all of a sudden they just balloon out and just take over so much territory in such a short time. It is unreal. In a matter of just decades, they had swept over a ton of Asia and into the Middle East and into, into you know the Eastern Europe. It was incredible. Now here's my most controversial take. The anti-Jewish violence was not justified. There, I said it. What, you call that a hot take? Come on now. (laughs) That was stamped and sealed and approved by YouTube. Look, if I got kicked out of 109 bars, I'd say, huh, you know what? Maybe it's me. I'm just saying. But look, you're right. The ethnic cleansing was wrong. If you want to reorganize your land, just kick the people you don't want out. Don't kill them. That's what people, I mean, that's what the kingdoms end up doing, most of them. Yeah. They all kicked him out, and Poland's the only one who wanted him. I'm serious. <laughs> yeah. No, That's why right. there are so many in Poland. Anyways. The German treatment of their neighbors was terrible. But Germany has always been a land of barbarians, so what can I say? Hey, that right there is the land of my ancestors you're talking about. By Allah, I will show you the underside of my shoe. <laughs> As Tyrement admits, the crusades against heretics were less effective than inquisitions afterward. The Albigensians were only eliminated after the Inquisition meticulously removed them. War against heretics is almost never the best way to remove the cancer of heresy from Christendom. Maybe sometime we can do an episode on the Inquisition. Perhaps. In my opinion, the Inquisition is much more unjustly condemned. I think it's a lot a lot better than crusading. Really, because people paint it as being awful terrible. Like, they were torturing and killing all sorts of people left and right. Well, we, we can make an episode out of it, maybe. But okay. You know, personally, I think that things will have to come to a head at some point if you're talking about uh, a future crusade or whatever. The mass migration in Europe right now is unsustainable, and I think Christendom will have to fight at some point, even though fighting, as you have said, is 
is not the always the best course of action and usually leads to worse outcomes, what other choice do we have? First of all, you say Christendom. There is no such thing as Christendom anymore. Fair. Christendom is institutionalized Christianity, which no longer exists anywhere fair europe is barely even christian at this point so well yeah, yeah especially look at the like the czech republic or portugal right aren't they super low on the religious belief portugal scale? is actually very religious uh you're but you're right about czech republic that's what i was thinking of is yeah czech republic yeah sad but i mean what are we to do you know i think it's inevitable maybe but i would say as far as crusading uh no way because if you think the american adventures in the middle east have been disastrous just wait for the carnage when America actually declares war on Islam. Yikes. Do you want American Muslims to blow themselves up all over the country? Because that's what's going to happen when you threaten Islam, the second form of jihad activates. <laughs> activates super jihad powers. Do you want an actual war with Israel for or against? Do you want to actually have Israel blow up its neighbors? Or get blown up, blown up by its neighbors. Well, any more than that's already going on over there now? They're, they're little blowing up. Well, yeah, this will be big <laughs> blowing ups. You're, you're right. You're right. It would be catastrophic. But it's heading that way, I think. It would unleash too much mayhem. We don't need to discuss Israel now, except to say that the current setup is good for pilgrims of all three religions. We can go to the Holy Land without trouble, most likely. Considering that America and Europe are now bastions of secularism and progressivism, it is highly improbable that they will declare holy war against infidels. If they do, it will be on their determined mission to bring homosexuality to Zimbabwe. <laughs> well said. But, but seriously, though, that's what they're trying to do, you know? It's like, uh, oh, look at our Air Force. It's so diverse. It's so inclusive. Meanwhile, you know, the Chinese are making supersonic, hypersonic rockets that deliver nukes to us, you know, in 30 minutes or less, or it's free. And here we are pink hair and pregnant soldiers guy man i could do a whole episode on that gosh take it away let's go over our takeaways the crusades were a series of conflicts that spanned over much of europe and the middle east over centuries and not just in the holy land the effects of these expeditions were and are huge and can be seen throughout the regions they took place in besides the holy land ironically the Crusades go against our modern ideologies and are routinely mocked and scorned, but this is a simplistic approach. Crusading rhetoric continues to be a common feature both here and among Middle Easterners. Finally, our lingering questions. Will the Pope ever call Catholics to fight in actual war again? Anytime. Not this Pope. Well, that's obvious, but anytime. I mean, no, no one knows what the future holds. No one knows what the political or economic circumstances of the world will be. In the future, even in just as soon as maybe you know, 10 years from now, we cannot even know what will happen. So I'm not going to count it out. I'm saying it's probably unlikely. But what do you think? Yeah, it's really hard to say like how how much longer the world has. You know, if it's like a thousand over a thousand years, maybe it's very plausible. I mean, if there is some kind of revival somehow, maybe Africa will become Catholic and just like invade Europe. I don't know. Oh, now that would be something. Pull out your popcorn and your junior mints for that one. Yep. Is violence over religion ever justified? Yes. Now, as the resident atheist at the Sons of Antiquity podcast, you would probably expect me to say, no, actually, it's never justified. Peace and love, kumbaya, get along. But I agree with Evan. Religious violence is justified. Sometimes. 
Oh, yeah, not blanket like all the time, no matter what you do. <laughs> uh, let's not go that extreme. But I, I do believe that it is justified when you are trying to preserve your culture. It, it's an extension sort of, I think, of like just just the violence that is inherent in the system, so to speak, to quote uh, uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. I think that humans are always going to be violent, and they're going to be violent for different reasons. And it doesn't really matter what those reasons are, whether it's to preserve your political ideology, to preserve your culture, to preserve your religion. So in order for me to say that religious violence is not justified, I think I'd kind of have to say that no violence is justified. And I'm not going to say that because violence is justified when you're defending yourself and protecting your culture and uh, promoting things that are intrinsically good, which I think Christianity in many ways is intrinsically good. It's certainly better than the Eastern religions. Certainly. Now, it also depends on how you define violence. If you mean coercion, yeah, I definitely say it can be justified. Like, for example, having a a state religion, that's if it's Catholicism, it could be justified, you know, in my opinion, which could be considered a form of violence, but it's more religious tolerance. It's like an established religion that gets funding and stuff, but it's not a matter of like burning other people at the stake for being a different religion. Yeah, I certainly believe that would be too extreme, and I wouldn't want to live under that system. But I I have also seen the negative results, um, you know, the negative aspects of religious tolerance and tolerance just in general. So where is— You mean religious liberty, because tolerance is like a middle ground policy— of like you tolerate it you know it's not like you love it he's like you we allow you to do what you got to do okay fair enough there is some important distinctions on on the words we're using there it, it, it is a tough call I, I certainly don't want like super far religious liberty anarcho-capitalism do literally whatever i see i've seen what where that has taken us it's taken us down a bad road but i also don't want to live under a, like a theocracy so there is there needs to be some sort of happy medium and can we have a state religion and maintain that happy medium? I don't know. But at this point, if it means that we can return to something that resembles normalcy and there's no blue hairs and fatties and trannies and et cetera, et cetera, I'd be willing to try it. I'm willing to try something new. New to me, at least. That's my take. Hit me up in the comments section if you disagree. <laughs> what would have happened if the West would have never gone to crusade in the Holy Land? Both what would happen to the Holy Land and what would have happened to Europe? That's a tough one. You know, there's so many different parts and pieces in there. So to try and game it all out is very difficult. But I think that certainly the East would have remained pretty strong. And there may have been some weird entangling alliances with with Mongols or with different um, sects in the Islamic regions. So without all a lot of the infighting that ended up happening... Maybe we could have focused our efforts more on pushing back against the East as a as a unified East and West force. I don't know. What do you think? I don't think much of much would have changed in the Middle East. I don't think the Muslim empires were affected too much, besides weakening the Byzantines, arguably. But I think Europe, I think Europe would have been weaker if they hadn't done it. In really? The long term. It brought them together, and it, I mean, it consolidated a lot of power. But it also, uh, I don't know. What other opportunity would have brought the French and the English and the Germans and the Spanish and the Italians into one coalition? Nothing. Nothing short of like alien invasion. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. No, I agree. So even though they failed mostly, they were united and that might have done, had a better long-term effect, you're saying. 
Yeah, and if we want to be dark, we can say the fall of Constantinople actually spawned the Renaissance in Western Europe because a lot of the intellectuals and what have you in Constantinople fled to Italy. And that's where the Renaissance started. And that's where the classicism started because they brought their ancient Greek texts. Fascinating. And uh, if you dived into the the fall of Constantinople and talk about some of the artwork and the literature that was taken. And you know, some of it was pawned off. Some of it was stolen, burned, whatever. But some of it did end up in, in uh, other parts of Western Europe. And it are still there today. Those pieces of art are still there. I think the relics of St. Mark the Apostle were stolen by the crusaders in the fourth crusade and brought back to venice mm-hmm. there's a cathedral of saint mark's in venice that's just beautiful i think they stole a lot of stuff to make that church like probably and stuff did you see in any of your research about the bronze horses no that was my first time hearing about it those i, I saw and they're still oh, wait are they in venice they may be okay i may have heard of them i think they're like right next to that church maybe in the church yeah it's beautiful artwork and it's crazy to think that it's over 800 years old Now, our final question. Why does Evan never want to read about this subject ever again? It was so tiresome. So much detail. When it's a subject you don't know much about, it's just overwhelming. And you have to go down so many rabbit trails to find the answers you want. It took up so much time. I'm just tired of it by the end. Mm, Never wants to hear about a crusade again. And And it's just like kind of an ugly part of history, too. So it's it's not as rewarding as other things. Yeah, and also because it, uh, there was, yeah, there was no catharsis at the end. It was just like, oh, we failed a bunch, and then we kept failing, and then it just ended up that it's like we didn't even do anything. Yeah, wow. that too. It's not rewarding in any way to study it from a Catholic perspective. Yeah, from the Catholic perspective, I could see how that would not be rewarding at all. Sorry, bro. Inquisitions, on the other hand, beautiful. We'll definitely do an episode on that. I, I think that's a good idea. Maybe sometime in the 30s? No promises. That's all for today's show. Join us again next time for even more ancient wisdom. 